This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and thank you for downloading this special Eye on Education podcast from the 3rd of June. On our programme today, we shone the spotlight on all the interesting school stories hitting the headlines this week. Not least, we discussed whether you can spot sporting talent in primary age children and how soon you should start training them up. Plus, as Dubai's population swells and the schools start to fill up, we asked whether bigger classes mean less teacher attention. We also discussed the UAE's recent success in the Special Olympics. That was with Fatma Mohammed, who is head of the UAE delegation, which recently returned from the event in Malta. Plus, we spoke to a teacher from an unusual school in Port Macquarie in Australia. Catherine Shaw from the Nature School told us all about life in her classroom. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. This is our chance to have a look at all the top education stories that are hitting the headlines. And Zina Zalamea joins me in the studio to talk through a story that's actually broken just in the last couple of hours. Hi, Z, how are you doing? Hi, Georgia. Yes, and this is a scoop from The National. They've been talking to schools to find out how the recent increase in fuel prices will impact their transport. Now, head teachers are weighing up whether to pass on those costs to parents as the price of running school buses starts to rise. Uh, in line with rising uh, global oil prices. Drivers in the UAE have been paying more for fuel in the past few months. Uh, That's a 10% increase in March and a 16% increase in April. Now, other bills have also been going up for schools as the cost of living increases. Some schools have already started to consider biofuel buses, uh, and the UAE authorities have been looking at electric buses as well, which would also, of course, be better for the environment. So, good and bad news. It would be great if they brought in electric buses because you see the yellow buses trundling around all the time and I have to say they don't I'm sure they're all very well serviced but they don't look very very clean do they? The fumes coming out of the back for example. Really? Yeah do your children get the bus? Mine don't. I can drive them usually because the show finishes on time. Yes, that is the case for me as well. But they did go on the school bus and the only problem with that was it took them ages to get home. Um, Yeah. Because but, it goes, I mean, there is one from my school, but we live in Um Sakim and it goes via the palm. I'm like, that is not a direct route. It's not a good route, yeah. yeah. Um, but also it's very expensive. So with rising costs, uh, if it gets more expensive, I don't know how parents will adjust to that. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I know that one of the big elements for our neighbours, for example, whose, whose children are at the French school, their school fees are actually fairly low because I think the French uh, government subsidises them. But their bus fare is enormous. Like they really notice that coming out of their budget. And oddly enough, quite often when companies give you a school allowance, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a lucky person to be on one of those contracts that gives you a school allowance, they often don't include transport in that allowance. And as a consequence, that is just a set cost out of your monthly income basically oh gosh but parents are getting creative i know you do carpooling i do carpooling it does mean that every single afternoon around four thirty, i have five sometimes six boys in my car uh, they've been cooped up at school for hours they then have a snack and there's nothing they like more than torturing me for the entire half hour <laughs> it is always awful gosh they're all boys <laughs> oh yeah i hope they're all buckled up Oh, yeah. All buckled up. They're all in seats. Don't worry. I refuse to move until the seatbelts are on. Nice. Sometimes that can take 10 minutes just to give you a quick a- visual image of my afternoons. <laughs> it I is go- a pain. 
Uh, if, if anyone wants to do my school run for me, I, I beg of you, come and do it. Please. It is literally the worst hour of my life. zero <laughs> one Every single day. I could get a driver. Like I could pay for a driver. I could pay for that. But that feels like the ultimate Dubai like cave. You know, you can have a gardener. You can have someone who helps you in your house. You can have a cleaner. You can send out your dry cleaning. But to someone, you know, if, if you can pick up your children and you don't, that is the ultimate sort of Jamira Jane moment, I think. <laughs> Anyway, so I do pick up my children. It is the worst hour of my life. Um, and let's move on from that topic now that, you know, this counselling session is over. Um, so meanwhile, uh, Indian schools in the Emirates say the recent changes to the visa rules in the UAE is set to swell school populations. That's true. Well, this is all off the back of the reform of the labor law, which introduced green visas for middle income workers and allowed parents to sponsor their male children uh, until they're 25. Now, GEMS Education, the biggest school provider in the Emirates, said they've seen a 6% year-on-year increase in enrollments in their Indian schools. Meanwhile, their international schools have seen a 70% increase in term three new joiners, 70% compared to this time last year. Now, these figures reflect the statistics released by the KHDA recently, which showed that a record number of 303,262 pupils are currently enrolled in the Dubai's private schools. Now, that's a sharp rise uh, on the 289,000 total last September and above the pre-pandemic level of just over 295,000 children in the previous year to 2019 to 2020. And of course, we'll be discussing whether this is leading to bigger class sizes and whether that's a problem on the program just after midday. Meanwhile, as the Taliban rulers of Afghanistan continue to ban secondary education for girls, Malala's father has spoken out in favour of letting girls go to school. Now, you might remember Malala. Uh, I think she is now known as, on a sort of a one-name basis. Uh, she was the young Pakistani who was shot in the head as a child, who's since gone on to make a full recovery, go to Oxford University, and she won a Nobel Peace Prize in 2014, aged only 17. Wow. Amazing. I'm so happy for her. She's happily married. She's got a degree. Uh, she's speaking for girls' education all over the world. Uh, and yes, Georgia, in an op-ed written for the national newspaper, her father, Ziauddin Yousafzai, said, education breaks misogyny uh, and patriarchal thinking. Ziauddin is a teacher, education activist, and co-founder of the Malala Fund. Now, he also insisted there's no religious reason why girls should be allowed to go to school and pointed out that there are approximately approximately 50 Muslim-majority countries on this planet. And, of course, Afghanistan is the only one where girls' education is banned. Uh, it's an amazing piece. I read it twice. Uh, well worth a read if you want to check it out. Yes. Now, Malala studied at Oxford University, and now it is going to get much easier for foreign undergraduates to study in the UK. Yes, it's a great announcement from the UK government. Uh, it's changed its visa rules, uh, basically. Now, graduates from the world's top colleges who are still early on in their careers will now be able to apply for a short-term visa to stay and work in the UK. Now, the UK government has said that people who have graduated in the last five years from one of uh, 
the eligible leading universities will be able to apply for its high-potential individual visa. Now, I've looked at the list. It's mostly uh, universities from, uh, you know, the U.S., Harvard, John Hopkins, etc. There are also universities from Hong Kong, Switzerland, and Singapore. Um, so it's very limited. It's a list of 50 unis. Now, successful applicants will be granted a two-year visa, while those with a PhD will be offered a three-year visa. Now, graduates granted... Uh, an HPI, that's what they call it, High Potential Individual Visa, will also be able to switch to other long-term employment visas if they meet the eligibility requirements. Now, graduates, partners, and children can also apply to join or stay with them in the UK. This is big. Yeah, it's interesting to see that the UK trying to encourage, you know, impressive individuals, intellectual, uh, qualified individuals to come and live in the UK, ultimately live in the country. And that's exactly, of course, what the UAE has been doing. Mm -hmm. They've made it much easier for students to stay here in the country. Their parents can sponsor them until they're 25, even the men, even the young lads. And that just means that you're you're not getting a brain drain. People are more likely to stay in the country while they find a good job, while rather than stay in the country where maybe where they studied, because quite a lot of people leave here to go to university. Mm-hmm. And the temptation there is for them not to leave, especially if the employers, you know, they do these fantastic milk rounds where the employers come round and try and steal all the graduates before they finish their degree. In this way, the, you know, the UAE is kind of persuading people to come back and, and to stick with them and to encourage very bright people to work in the country instead. So there you go. All the other, you can see all the countries are changing their visa rules in, in this are. desperate quest to capture talent. Very interesting story. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. We have a very important topic that we want to discuss over the next half hour because as the population of Dubai expands, schools are getting busier and class sizes are increasing. Now, official statistics show that 303, more than 303,000 pupils are enrolled in the Emirates private schools. That is a sharp rise since September and well above the pre-pandemic level uh, from last year. Now, certainly the British school where I send my children uh, are planning to increase their class size to 24 next term. Uh, That is despite us paying quite premium fees. You might hear a little bit of resentment there in my voice uh, and you'd be accurate because there are lots of parents who are way angrier than I am about it. There really are up in arms. But are they right to be worried? And that is the big question because let's be honest, most of us know pretty much nothing about pedagogy. Like It's not like we went to teacher training college. It's a bit like the people who tell you that the COVID-19 vaccine isn't very good for you and yet they know nothing about medicine. So it's a little bit like that. You know, you have to be slightly careful as a parent that you presume that larger class sizes therefore mean less, you know, less teacher attention for your kids. But, you know, ultimately when it comes down to it, is that accurate? To discuss this topic, I'm joined by two professionals in their field. We have Claire Turnbull. She's the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. And also Lisa Grace Wilson, who is deputy editor of Teach Middle East magazine. They're both on Microsoft's Teams, which means I have this amazing split screen scenario. Um, And if you want to watch it on Facebook, we are live right now. But thank you very much, ladies, for joining me for this important conversation. 
Hello, hello. Lovely to be hello. here. Hello. <laughs> nice to be here. So because there's two of us, I will do that slightly strange thing of going, saying your name when it's your turn to speak so that we don't talk over each other too much. But thank you very much for joining us. Uh, so, Claire, I'm going to start with you. Are smaller classes better? Do you know what? The research is really mixed on this one. Um, uh, so so it's a, it's been a hot debate, I would say, for the last 20 years in education and the rest. Um, and uh, interestingly, if you go to pure research, pure research would, would negate the effect of larger class sizes. However, um, and I would say there's a big however, that's done in the purity of science and looking at academic results. There was a great book that was uh, published actually mid-pandemic by Peter Blatchford and Anthony Russell on class sizes. And they really, in my mind, got the balance right because they said, yes, that's the research. But actually, education is all about relationships and it's about the classroom processes that allow children to thrive. So, yes, of course, it does have an impact. Uh, Does it have an impact of the difference between 22 and 24? Potentially not massively, uh, but it does have the difference between 24 and 40. Um, uh, But I think if we take education as being relationships, the better quality interaction you have um, with as a teacher with your pupils, the better you know them, the better they are known, uh, the better progress that will come. It's not rocket science in that sense. I'll be honest, we're really lucky at RGS that we're able next year to average out at about 18 in a class size. Um, but our maximum's 22. Yeah. So instinctively, as a parent, I'm a bit like, get rid of all the other children. I just want 12. I want my, I want one teacher and I want uh, 12 kids and I want them to get, you know, amazing focus and I want them to be the centre of this teacher's attention. Lisa, is that, is that me just being silly that I don't really understand how teaching works? No, you're not being silly. You're, you're being a mom and, and I'm a mom as well. And so I would want, obviously, all the attention to be on my boys. But but there are advantages um, for larger class sizes. And really, if you have skilled practitioners in front of those students, you really can get some good teaching and learning taking place. You have to understand where education is going currently. It's going more in a collaborative mode where teachers are there to facilitate, they're there to actually see to it that the students learn independently and that they're actually getting the guidance that they need. And if you have a skilled practitioner, that person can really scan that room and see where the needs are and go to the need and make sure that the students are well taken care of even if the class sizes are a little bit larger. Now, like Claire said, of course, there's a massive difference. No matter how skilled you are, if there are 40 students in there, you are going to struggle. But if there are 23, 24 students in there and you are a really good practitioner, really good teacher, you can still give the attention when it's needed, to whom it's needed. And let me tell you something. Students who are really good at collaborating will actually be able to help their peers just by being there. Not that they're going to become teachers, don't get me wrong, they're not sending them to teach their friends, but just by helping to enrich that classroom environment with with their own knowledge, students learn those really independent skills that they need to go out into the world. So it's not all negative, 
it's not all bad. So when you describe uh, the, the classroom that sort of works quite well, where the students are learning on their own and learning independence and, you know, they get, they get started off by the teacher and then they go off and do the exercise on their own. I can imagine that happening for slightly older children. I've got, as I say repeatedly on air, quite young boys. They don't do that. <laughs> they need to be watched. So uh, arguably, um, is this, does this change for sort of age groups, Claire? You know, do you think you need more teachers, more teaching assistants for the younger kids? And then as they get a bit older, yes, they move into that sort of air, arena of, of studying themselves. Um, I would go, I'm going to be awful here and say yes and no, because um, I, I think our, our three-year-olds can show the most amazing independence. And I would absolutely agree. It's about your quality practitioners. Having said that, we have two adults in the room, uh, up to and including year two for exactly that. So because their concentration span, the time isn't so long. So they'll go off and they'll really work independently with that input from a teacher. But it might only be a task that lasts five five minutes, ten minutes. And you're right, when you're dealing with a sixth former, a year 13, they'll go and work for, for an hour by themselves. So yes, there is a, a, an, a, a sliding scale of that. Um, but it is about these relationships and that's about the outstanding practitioners whether they're teachers or TAs we've got some amazing teachers and assistants here in the UAE who will get who really know and understand the learning journey they know when to step in but most importantly when to step back and allow the children to develop those skills and that independence by themselves but not letting a child plateau because I think that's often a parent's fear when you say, oh, they're doing their own work. Actually, if you've got skilled practitioners, uh, uh, as we were saying, they're scanning that room. They're knowing exactly when to jump in and go, you know what? That's great. What about this? Have you thought about that? That sort of questioning is what really takes children's learning onto that higher level very quickly. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Discussing that very, very hot topic, at least in my community at the moment, because as Dubai... Dubai's population swells. The school population is swells. Uh, and, and in fact, in the private schools, it's now gone to more than 303,000. And that means that classrooms are filling up. Uh, we are joined in the studio uh, by Claire Turnbull, uh, who's the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Also, Lisa Grace Wilson, who's the deputy editor of Teach Middle East. I've kept them on the line. I haven't let them go away. Uh, but we've also been speaking to other teaching professionals, including Manam Kuma. Now, she's the founder and chair of EdTech company QMath. With her, the children learn virtually and only six are allowed on at the time. This is what she thinks about classroom size. Math is not just a subject to be learned or memorized, but a life skill that must be practiced over and over if a student has to master it. This means that it becomes necessary for the learner, the student, to be watched closely when they are solving problems. An expert teacher must be present who is watching each and every step that the learner is taking as they are solving various problems. The teacher's role has to be that of an observant facilitator and he or she needs to jump in and teach whenever the student becomes stuck somewhere so that the student gets the required help and can move forward. 
This means that the teacher should necessarily be working with only a small group of students at any point in time. Otherwise, the teacher will not be able to pay enough attention to what each and every student is doing and the class will become really ineffective. That is why math classes in most traditional setups like schools are so ineffective. The teacher just doesn't have the time to watch what each and every student is doing. Okay, so you got Manam Kerma there, who's the founder and chairman of the EdTech company Q Math, expressing his opinion that class sizes need to be small. Now, Lisa, what do you, I mean, are there any children in a large class that you would think would be disadvantaged uh, by their situation, by the sheer population of the room? I mean, there are students who would be better off in a small setting. I mean, it is not not everything is for everyone, right? So a large class might not be of benefit to a student who really needs that one-on-one support. But not all children need that. And I think when parents are thinking about the, the class sizes of, of the school at which their students attend, they need to think, does my child benefit from being in smaller settings? Do they really need that one-on-one? Or do I have a child who is fairly independent, can speak for themselves, um, can actually thrive in a setting where they are left to really explore and learn and experiment. And really, they only need to ask for guidance when needed. So I think it comes down to knowing that child. So, I mean, most of the children I know, I have to say, including my own, are pretty outgoing, loud, and will make sure that their presence is known. But Claire Turnbull, if your child is the opposite of that, if they're quite introverted, if if they're shy, are those children going to be able to get the attention they need in a large group? Yeah, absolutely. I, I I would say they are going back to that root uh, root point and decider, which is about quality teaching and quality professionals and this relationships. You know, I would, I really would argue that education is not about subject and knowledge acquisition purely and in isolation. And to me, education and getting our children future ready is all about those social skills. It's all about collaboration, debate. And as an introvert, growing in confidence to know how to put your opinion across. And you can only do that if you're in a group setting where you do learn those vital social skills. We probably all know, I do, fabulous academics um, who can work in isolation but can't work with others. Our job is to prepare our young people to be ready for the world. And that involves interaction as well as subject knowledge. Um, We have A good teacher will have great techniques for the introvert, for the extrovert, for 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 the child who who likes to move a lot, the child who likes to sit sit quietly a lot. You know, that's just about adapting your classroom environment to suit the amazing young people in your space. That's good teaching. So I don't think large groups or small groups suit introverts or extroverts. I think great teachers suit both those types. So 
This is really tricky because I'm listening to this and in my mind, I'm listening to you both. You're clearly professionals. You know your field. And I am literally just a parent who happens to work on the radio. But I just can't help but think that they'd be better off with more attention. <laughs> and and you kind of, you and, and you look at the school fees that we all pay out here, which are astonishing in many cases. And you just think, are these schools just packing them in? Because ultimately, you've had a you've had a bad, you know, the schools have had a bad few years. Uh, obviously, you know, everyone struggles, but the fees are high. And, and now this is finally an opportunity for the many schools that have been built in the UAE to sort of start to fill up and to and to finally, you know, and, and fair dues, their businesses to, you know, to make a bit more of a profit. I mean, Lisa, is that what you are seeing in schools in the UAE? Do you think that do you think the schools are being naughty and, and packing students in? Or do you think actually the reality is is that 24 is still a perfectly appropriate number of children in a class? Right. So there are two sides to this. Obviously, schools will try to maximize wherever possible. But, but you have to understand, when you go into the business of education, I want to be a, a real optimist to believe that even though they're businesses, they are businesses with, with conscience. So I'm sure they're not just going to pack students into a classroom like sardines to make as much money as possible. There is a balance. Obviously, they want to make sure they have enough so that they can cover the overheads and make a profit. But they also want to do right by children and right by parents. This is just, you know, my optimism. Um, I taught. So I taught. I'm not a journalist per se. I taught for many years and led schools for many years. And when I taught, I taught classes of 25, 24. And I stood up a lot. I walked around a lot. I could see where the needs are. I could pinpoint where my little introverts are hiding from me and not wanting to talk. I could talk to them and get them out of their shells. I could see where my students are who are struggling. And and so really, if you have good teachers in the classroom, even if the class sizes go up a little, and please understand, I am a mummy as well, so I don't want my kids packed in a classroom. But I do think that schools wouldn't put them there to their disadvantage for the for just making profit. I really feel like schools are trying to make sure that there's a very good balance of teaching and learning quality as well as ensuring that things on the operational side is also ticking ticking along nicely. I mean, Claire, you're in a fortunate position of, of your classes aren't don't go above 22. So you're already at the lower level of things in this situation. Yeah, absolutely. And that were that that was a choice that we made when we decided to design and set up this school. Um, we had the the luxury of being able to do that. Um, and uh, and and the added advantage, we're in that early stage where we're building a community and really, really building that community. Yeah, you know, we hope very successfully. So that's why we've been able, even to say for next year, we're looking at uh, a lower average uh, class size, but. But but that doesn't mean it's the only way. And I think that's the thing. So back home, my first my first class I taught as an NQT. I'm not saying it's right. I had 39 pupils in the class. Um, you know, that was a state school back home and I'm very old. So I realise times have changed. But but back in the UK, uh, the Royal Grammar School, um, uh, the senior school has a class average size of, uh, of 24 and uh, 18 in the prep school. And those are actually about physical constraints um, of, of, of not being in purpose-built 
buildings with great success. Um, uh, as an inspector of independent schools back in the UK, you will have lots of great independent schools, um, which will have class sizes of between 20 and 26, with uh, children thriving in that environment. Um, so I really do think it's it's easy for us to to worry. But I think the, what we should worry about is if we haven't got quality teaching. Mm -hmm. If we, if our children aren't making progress as parents, as professionals, my golly, we should worry. Of course we mm -hmm. should, because that's what education's about. But the two of whether it's 24 or 20 um, don't necessarily make the crucial difference. The crucial difference is about the whole ethos of the school and that focus on quality interactions, I think. My goodness me, you have managed to reassure me, which is brilliant because Good. it means you've, you've kind of gone past my parental instinct into actual reason, which is, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, thank you very much to both of you. Really lovely to have that conversation. I think it is such a key conversation to have at the moment as we do see brilliantly Dubai's population swelling and therefore the school community swelling as well. Uh, fascinating conversation there. Claire Turnbull, the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, and Lisa Grace Wilson, the deputy editor of Teach Middle East magazine. And, and, and as we just heard, a former teacher as well. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Now we are going to be discussing a key topic, basically, for most parents with talented children, because it all comes down to the fact that the UAE wants to produce Olympians. The country's UAE sports sector strategy of 2032 actually has 54 initiatives to ensure there is increased participation in sporting events among young people. And recently, a new government group called the UAE Sports Federation for School and University Education Institutions. There's a lot of words there. They held their first meeting with very promising results. Essentially, they're drawing up plans to ensure that schools work with sports authorities to discover these young exemplary athletes who have the potential to become elite athletes. They're basically talent spotters. Uh, and they also want to help improve the sports programs across campuses, hold inter-school and university tournaments. The group's headed by the newly appointed Minister of Education, of course, Dr. Ahmed Balul Al-Falasi. He's also the chairman of the General Authority of Sports. He is a busy man. Uh, the Federation targets more than 1.17 million students across the UAE and works alongside each Emirates Education Authority. Now, the UAE is is already home to a number of young elites, uh, elite athletes. Oddly enough, in the past, I've spoken to someone who's very good at skiing. Uh, but in the studio today, I have got two people who are particularly good at gymnastics. Uh, I'm joined by Michael Hill. He's a professional gymnast and a coach at Aspire Gymnastics in Dubai. And also Jake Phelan. Uh, now, Mike trained Jake. They both competed in the World Games, the World Championships and the European Championships together in 2017 and 2018. So it's fair to say they know each other pretty well and they're about to get to know me very well. So thank you very much for joining me in the studio, guys. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you for having thank us. You. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Um, really interesting to talk to you guys. And it's oddly, it's one of those topics that once you start thinking about it, you just have so many questions. Um, okay, so you competed in world tournaments as part of Team 
Great Britain, obviously. Big shout out to the Queen with the Platinum yes, Jubilee, Jubilee today. this weekend. <laughs> um, Michael, tell us first, how did your love for gymnastics start? Um, so I'm actually from a family of footballers. So all of my family played football. Um, and I just realised from a young age that that wasn't for me. I wanted like a different challenge. Um, so I started trampolining and then my coaches from trampolining scouted me for uh, gymnastics. And then my love kind of started from there. Um, it was really hard for my parents not to take me. I always wanted to uh, to be at gymnastics and I had a real passion for it. It was such a challenge, um, both physically and mentally. So that's what really got me into the sport. It is amazing to hear people's journeys that yours came through trampolining. Jake, how about you? How did you get into it? Um, so my family, we do not do sport at all. So um, I was in primary school, so I must have been about six, seven years old. Um, we had like PE lessons with the teacher. It was gymnastics and she must have noticed that I was like small. I was like flexible, like natural for the sport because um, everyone in my family is small. So she noticed that and then she was like, oh, come to the gymnastics center. She told me the location. It's like not far from mine. So I went there like regular days and then, yeah, from there, started training. It, so, I mean, what's interesting there is that your teacher spotted a certain amount of talent. Yeah. Natural talent, natural sort of body shape early on in the days. Mm-hmm. Now, now, you guys are now responsible for sort of finding new talent and spotting it. Is it genuinely possible to see that in primary age children, Michael? Um, yes, I would say so. I would say so. It's, you know, the coordination, the balance, um, the commitment, the enthusiasm. I would argue that I like to take the kids that, you know, maybe uh more passionate for the sport because I know that I can develop them and bring the best out in them if they're a little bit more dedicated towards the sport. Um, but you can definitely you can definitely notice. But everyone can be coached. Everyone can be nurtured into into a gymnast. It just takes a little bit of time. So I have my kids, and I think this must be the same for most parents. You know, you sort of try to give your children a, as broad a possible sort of experience of life. You know, you try to pay for all the sports for them to go and try even in the UAE, where it just is incredibly expensive. So I've got boys, um, so I'm afraid I followed the rather um, gender-specific route of, you know, they do football. (laughs) Apologies for everyone on that. They also like robots and hitting each other. Um, So, uh, uh, And so they... um, But they haven't shown... I mean, they're not listening now. They're still in school, thank goodness. You know, they're okay, but no one's going taking me to one side and going, well, you know, those two lads. And I think that's really important. I think you have to have good communication skills with your coaches, with your management teams, just because I know that at our facility, if we think um, a child has potential in the sport, well, we will ask them to commit a little bit more, add a few more days, maybe focus on that sport um, specifically. But we need to have those conversations. We're very fortunate in Dubai that kids can do so many different activities. um, But that's not always the best thing when you want to be elite in one particular sport, especially gymnastics. It's very difficult and it requires a lot of time and training um, and it would be much better for gymnasts to do say those six days of purely gymnastics rather than splitting it across with um, a different sport. Now that's interesting there because you said six days now is that mm. is that what is necessary Jake is that basically what you did yeah, when you were being so we trained, trained up? Yeah six days it was four hours every day so 
Wow. Yeah, it was intense. Like we did it all the time. Saturdays was our longest day because we trained in the morning because it's the weekend sort of thing. During the morning, it was like what, like four, four and a half hours sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, it was very like hands on, especially. And build up to competition, it would be even it more. Would be even yeah. even more. Yes. And at, at what the time, age? I was I was quite I was quite old in the sport. Yeah. I retired from gymnastics. Um, and then I actually came back into the sport and I was working full time um, as well as doing these training hours, oh which goodness. was um, when I look back, actually, it seems super crazy that I was able to to do those hours as well as um, a full time job. Yeah. Um, but it's just what's required from the sport. And I think it's really important that we have those conversations with the parents and and get them to fully understand what's required. And it's not just in gymnastics. I think it's in every sport. It's it's what's actually required when you get to a competitive level um, so that the parents understand and the, and the kids understand the importance of of doing it the right way. Yeah, yeah, the devotion. Yeah. I mean, Jake, when you started doing this training and, and you were going six hours a day, you know, uh, several hours a day, yeah. how old were you when you started that intensity of training? So it normally starts from about the age of, I'd say maybe 12, mm. 11 sort of thing, that sort of thing, because that's when you start to get serious at that age because it's a sport that... You know, you have to be good at it from a young age. Like, it's not something that you do later on in life. So it's always from a younger age you get to that point, And it's so intense. Like, it's good, though. Like, it's good. Did you and enjoy it? Was it fun? You feel part yeah, of the team? Is part of the community? Like, and- yeah, I still train now. I still, like, perform now. So it's always something that's in my life. Like, when I don't train, I don't feel good. Oh, when I'm training, like, yeah. it makes me happy. That's, like, my safe space, like... When I'm training, everything's good. When I'm performing, everything's good. When I'm not, I'm just like a bit lost. And it's so. more than a sport. It's yeah. more than the sport. It's what you learn okay. from the sport. It's the timekeeping. It's the dedication. Yeah, it's the commitment. Come it's it. coming to the gym when you don't feel 100% because they're the days when you really learn the most about what's required. Like, how can I get through this session when I'm not feeling 100%? And that's the same in work like if you're not feeling yeah. great you still have to go to work yeah you have you're to still... have your coffee you have to get off your bottom <laughs> and you have to get in the car yeah. and, and go and to and it teaches you all these all these other things that are really important this is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom now accepting applications from FS1 to U7 efforts are underway by the government to spot and foster sporting talent among among the youth of the Emirates. Basically, the UAE wants to produce Olympians and the government is working with schools to ensure that we don't miss out on spotting potential elite athletes. Now, Umar Hamid runs Athletes in Schools UAE and he has welcomed this news. We have been trying to do this for a while and, it, and it's great that, uh, you know, now we have uh, this huge organisation Um, sports federation trying to get behind it and do the same thing Um, i think it's fundamental that this happens so that children have a, a a platform from which they can grow develop and uh and kind of pursue their passions and then there's a lot of talented a lot of talented kids in the uae um but they they just previously hasn't been the correct channels for them um AIS Athletics, we have been creating the uh, the grassroots to greatness strategy um, and you know we, we've had this for the last couple of years and it's worked very well in schools. I think what the Sports Federation are going to do is basically do something very similar but on a global level. 
Really interesting there to hear from Umar Hamid, who runs Athletes in Schools UAE. Now, I've kept two people in the studio with me. I've got Michael Hill and Jake Phelan from uh, Aspire Gymnastics. Uh, They are both elite gymnasts themselves, and they're now training the next generation of Olympians here in the UAE. Thank you for staying with me, guys. Now, what's so interesting out there is that we heard sort of mention of parents. And of course, parents are key in this process of spotting the next generation of sporting uh, stars. But how do you handle a pushy parent that is getting it wrong, as in their child just isn't in the zone, not good enough, and is just being forced into the sport, Michael? How, how do you deal with people like that? I think it's about having those honest conversations and being approachable and, and maybe letting the, the parent know that maybe the child's better suited for a, for a different sport, a different activity that they might um, you know, succeed in. Um, it does happen. It does happen. A lot of you know parents have dreams of sending their kid to the Olympic for gymnastics and things, but you know it could be a different sport that um, suits them a little bit better. And we just need to make sure that we have those conversations and we can guide them along the right path. Really, I mean, if you're listening to this and you're a parent, you're thinking, "Well, I really do." you know, push little Johnny. Like, I really do encourage them to get on with whatever it is. And, you know, I take him three times a week. Oh, goodness, am I that pushy parent? You know, so how would you advise parents to get it right so that their child is keen to pursue the sport, but they're not being forced into it because they need your approval? It, it has to be child-led. The, the child has has to want to go to gymnastics. Um, and ultimately, it, re- it really does come from them. From them. It's... Um, their job really when the child's a little bit tired and a little bit unmotivated that's the job where the parent says come on look it's okay let's let's get to the gym you'll feel better once you're there and and it's always the same once the children are actually there and they start the the sport then they really get into it and they're the days where you really learn gymnastics and really learn that commitment and the dedication and and the grit that's required because not every day is easy um, and they're the days when you, you really learn the most. Yeah, so that goes on to my story. So my parents have never forced me to do anything in life. They were never pushy with gymnastics, with anything, education. So for me especially, I didn't have that experience with pushy parents. It was always like me wanting to do it myself. And I think that's important also because, you know, if the child has like so much motivation for it, then that's important. Yeah. I mean, for example, I've never dealt with pushy parents at all. You're it lucky. was always yeah, <laughs> exactly. It was always yeah. driven by you. Did you have bad days though when you done you know uh-huh. day five of your week of training? You're like all enough the time. of this. Oh we had gymnastics oh, is yeah. like very difficult. Like it's very like one good day, one bad day, like all the time. But the bad days are the days that you improve the most. You know, if you're in a bad mood or you're like tired, you're sick and you still push through training, then the next day when you're good... It's even better. It's even better, yeah, yeah and that's when you improve. So we the used bad to have days a, are the best. a yeah. joke, didn't we? It was always Thursday for us, because uh-huh. by Thursday, our bodies were really saying, no, <laughs> yeah. no, we need, we need our day off. Um, In journalism, then, it's Tuesdays, by the way. Right, <laughs> there's, no, there's never any news no. on a Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tell me, you guys, you've put so much time and effort into it. And thank goodness, because you've achieved, you know, you've won awards, you've done incredibly well. Yeah. What about the people who don't make it that they get, you know, the children that ultimately, you know, age 15 or 16, they've put their lives into it and then they get injured or frankly, they just turn out they're just not good enough. Because I remember in ballet, that would happen all the time. You know, you'd get to a certain level, but ultimately it's impossible to, for everyone to make it. 
that I think that it's really important for the gymnasts to realise and athletes to realise that there is always options after their competitive career. If you don't reach your highest potential goal in competition, there's so much more you can do. You can go into the coaching side, you can go into performing, and that really opens up a lot of opportunities, a lot of opportunities all around the world as well, because, you know, we we could have competed, sorry, we could have um, performed anywhere really in the world. Yeah. Um, and it would have been a nice lifestyle to have as well, being able to travel around. Yeah, I bet. It would have been fab. I mean, we've had lots of lovely messages coming in. Uh, do add your voice. If you've got any questions for these guys, they are taking your questions. Michael Hill and Jake Phelan. Uh, so uh, Tahir says, my daughter is two and a half years old. She can do amazing stretches and we see great potential. How can we nurture that sort of uh, God-given sort of physical talent, I suppose? Just just join join a centre, join a centre that takes the, the younger children and, and let them, you know... Um, train her up. Yeah, yeah, train her up. Enjoy it. Enjoy yeah. it. Um, I mean, how often at that age should they be going? You know, say, I mean, two and a half is pretty young. So say four to six. How, how many hours of gymnastics should they be doing at that age? Four to six, probably two to three times a week. Really? Yes. Yeah. Wow. So my kids went once a week for an hour when they were about... Five, and then when they got to six, the suggestion was that they should go up to two hours. And I was a bit like, nah, mm-hmm. it's too expensive. Um, so I scuppered their athletics careers <laughs> literally at that, with that tiny decision right then and there. Yeah, we just have to remember that if the coaches are asking for the children to do more hours and more days, it's because they're ready to do it. They're, they're ready to do more yeah. Sport. Actually, um, I should have listened. Maybe they were. Maybe they were sort of quietly trying to tell me that my children were actually quite good at something. Absolutely. Yeah. That sounds sounds like that. Oh no! Like <laughs> there we go. Destroyed their careers before they even started. Amit sends this lovely message in, saying, "My son Liam does two hours a week. He's nine. He loves gymnastics, and it is amazing to hear both of you talk about the sport. It's always hard to find local role models for gymnastics for boys. So there you go, guys. Yeah, we'll have to get. Um, we'll have to send your Instagram handles to Amit. Uh, one interesting message that's come through here that's a little bit more controversial uh abdus salam says the reality is most of the big athletes came from pushy almost abusive parents especially for the individualistic sports now i suppose if you think famously of um richard who was uh, the serena serena and venus williams's parent if you think about tiger woods his father had him you know training for hours from the age of two do you see that here in the UAE? Do you see parents who are driving their children too hard? Um, we do. We do see that. However, it's not something that we tend to see too much in yeah. our facility. That's good. Um, and again, it's quite hard for us to... Um, I, I completely understand what they're saying, but for both me and Jake, it was completely self-led. Yeah, self-led. We were self-motivated by it. Um, How about the cost? Because, of course, uh, you know, I backed off when they said it was going to be two, two and a half hours. And, and, and as a consequence, that was going to be something like 250 dirhams per child per week. How how do you guys pay for all that training? What about the, the, the children whose parents don't have much money? How, how, are there grants? There, there is actually, there is grants. And also this week we've recently done um, a scholarship as well for school. So this person, because they're doing very well in gymnastics, have actually got a school sh- uh, scholarship as well. So we do encourage, you know, the best we can for for all of that. And as well, if we do see a kid that does have the potential, does have the talent, but can't necessarily afford it, then you can always have that conversation with our higher management. And there's always 
deals that can be done to make sure that that athlete gets to train. So the UAE has announced its sort of plan to produce these elite athletes. Do you think that that's something that can be done top down? Do you think that they can support that process from the top? Jake, do you think that's possible from the top? Um, Or do you think it needs to be grassroots? It depends, yeah, grassroots definitely. But, um, you know, it could be supported like any time at all. But as we've seen before, with... um, Sorry, with parents that don't necessarily have a lot of money, that was the situation with me. Like, my coaches let me train for free sort of thing. Did they? Like, not all the time, but yeah. But enough, yeah. Mainly, yeah. You were basically lived at the gymnasium, didn't you? Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> but it's because you were, the you potential were spotted was there, from, yeah. You were spotted from being quite young, young age, to have yeah. that real natural talent, which is why the coaches wanted to support you and keep you in yeah. the centre. And you worked at the center to also yeah to, to, to pay. help pay for your oh, your good fees on you. yeah yes. there's so. a real sign of devotion there i mean do you think michael from the top down do you think they can if you have these sort of policies if you have these strategies do you think you can create olympians out of the children in your society Ab- absolutely absolutely but it comes from education we need to educate the clubs the coaches and you know we need that's that's where where we start really that's right yeah uh, so it does start at the grassroots level Absolutely. ultimately really interesting to speak to both of you fascinating to hear how i basically destroyed my children's gymnastics career uh, <laughs> when they were six potentially uh, but really lovely to hear about how you can develop here in the uae uh, michael hill and jake Phelan, thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure to have you in the studio and of course uh, if you're interested in learning uh, how to do tumbles and turns and all the other things they do in gymnastics <laughs> you can tell i'm not part of the industry um then you can check out aspire gymnastics in dubai this is eye on education on the agenda with the royal grammar school guildford dubai passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people Millions of students, this is a new news story, who participated in virtual learning during the COVID-19 pandemic have had their personal data and online behaviours tracked. Now, that is according to Human Rights Watch, which is an international advocacy organisation. It found that educational apps and websites monitored children's behaviour without their consent and in many cases shared third-party advertising technology companies. The personal data included details such as their identity, location, their online activity and behaviours, plus information about their family and friends. Now that report comes as the privacy and protection of children online really is coming under the spotlight. That is one report about education apps and websites. But we're actually going to talk about social media on the programme today, uh, specifically TikTok, because I'm joined now by Dr. Hamid Al-Nayadi. He is part of TikTok's Safety Advisory Council here in the Middle East. Uh, Dr. Nayadi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. Now, children have to be 13 to be on TikTok. Uh, You are on that Safety Advisory Council. Now, what are the issues on your agenda? Agenda when you meet? What type of topics come to the fore? Well, uh, first of all, safety is a job that has no finish line for TikTok. Uh, this is a clearly manifested in their, in their, in their um, uh, efforts to improve the platform safety. 
tools and policies. So our advisory board or safety advisory board uh, will look into uh, the current issues that are faced by the community uh, during their serving uh, on the platform. Many issues like uh, uh, hate speech, uh, bullying, um, other issues uh, that concern misinformation. Oh, of course, especially over COVID-19. Exactly. Uh, I mean, things like I think the primary, as a mother, I think my primary concern would be inappropriate content, children seeing inappropriate content for their age. Is that something that TikTok controls? Yes, of course. Uh, there is uh, uh, three controls uh, that uh, TikTok offer to the family. First one is the account settings. You can set uh, the account for your uh, child, uh, not to be their video not to be seen, uh, to set to a private mode. Uh, also, there is a, a com- community control where the community, if they've seen a video that are not appropriate, then they can report it. Uh, and then uh, there is uh, other controls also uh, for the child himself to put uh, a private, I mean, setting to, to his friend to see his videos and to, to his friends. And other video are not related or it says um, uh, over the age of 16 will not be seen by that child. How about concerned that TikTok could be used by predatory adults to contact children because it's well known as being a popular social media site for kids. And therefore, sadly, you can imagine that if somebody wanted to spend more time with children than they should, that this might be somewhere that they go to try and find them. As I said before, there is so much controls and setting you can control on your child uh, uh, platform. So one of them is uh, to uh, set his account as a private so nobody can uh, watch his videos. Also, there is a family or parents pairing. Uh, the, the family can also uh, watch what the child is doing or what other people are messaging him so they can see the messages. Also, you can turn off the messaging, private messaging to that uh, child. Oh, that's really helpful. Yes. Yeah, I can imagine. I definitely want the sort of mirror account so I could exactly. see what they're looking at. Yes, I mean, uh, mine are still seven and eight, but my goodness me, they like TikTok. Like, they'll grab my phone and watch it any time they can. Um, yes. And as a consequence, it is quite scary how quickly the algorithm learns what they want to watch. I'm also quite nervous. I have to say, so I went on TikTok fairly recently. I'm just learning how to use it. And I'm worried that TikTok gives children this false sense of beauty because I've noticed, for example, that when you record a video, a sort of selfie video, the app automatically applies a filter on my face that definitely makes me look hotter. I definitely look (laughs) way more attractive. Like I like me on TikTok more than I like me in real life. Now, why has the app been designed to do that immediately? You know, it's it's very sort of... nascency at the very point at which you open it it's defrauding your appearance if you know what i mean yes i mean this platform meant to be uh, for entertainment for enjoy- enjoyment and to feel better and to be creative and uh, tiktok providing different uh, uh, tools and different uh, uh, add-ons stuff just to feel you know happy and and to uh, to taste different tools and to see how you look like i mean different uh, uh, frames and different uh, oh yeah i mean yes. you can get the glasses i exactly. look, you know you can look like a strangely attractive cat exactly. you know, but all also, sorts of things exactly but tiktok is also uh, they they use filter uh, nearly to match the 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 uh, the real you it's not a fake or too much of uh, 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 too much of of, uh, of, of, uh, of a picture that's not related to you or it's enhancing too much. No, it's it's going to be look like to, to the to the no, normal environment. Little bit enhancement, but 
That's true. It's not like some of the apps that are out there that you can literally change your face, entirely change your face or put makeup on all over your face or change your figure. But I do feel like that TikTok may be... I mean, I often talk to teenagers about this and they're a bit like they're totally down with it. They're totally au fait. They get the fact that TikTok is, you know, curated reality, not real reality. Do you think that when it comes down to it, TikTok is a benefit for children in the UAE rather than a negative? I think, you know, uh, the new generation needs uh, many tools uh, uh, nowadays because they spend at least, if you know that, this is statistics, they spend seven, uh, at least seven hours a day on the mobile. Oh my gosh. Exactly. So they are far away from the real life. I mean, they're spending their time with their friends. So they have to be creative. They have to do something. They have to let out of their, you know, uh, good things that they have and that that's that's why it's that platform will help them and support them to show their creativity and also to the other skills they have with their friends with their families so and also it gives you a self-confident that's interesting yes yes i suppose it does if you it's an opportunity for creativity uh, so thank you so much lovely to have you on the radio we really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us on this uh, really quite controversial subject yeah, exactly. so we do appreciate it so dr hamid al niyadi he is part of tiktok's safety advisory council uh, joining us here on eye on education on the agenda this is eye on education on the agenda with the royal grammar school guildford dubai sister school to one of the most respected schools in the united kingdom Kingdom now accepting applications from FS1 to U7. Welcome back to the class. Now, I say welcome back to the class, welcome back to the show would have been slightly more accurate, but you can tell where my mind is going because it is that time of the week when we get to cross live to a classroom in an unusual school. It is always one of my favourite features of the week because probably just because I'm really nosy. Uh, but today's uh, My Classroom takes us to a place called Port Macquarie in Australia because we are exploring the Nature School. Apparently it has indoor and outdoor classrooms. But Zena, in writing my script, has put the word classrooms in inverted commas, which is very intriguing. And I'm joined now on Microsoft Teams by Catherine Shaw. She is head of primary at the Nature School. Uh, She's an accomplished educator and a self-confessed bird nerd. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Well, hello from Australia. Here at the Nature School in Port Macquarie in Australia, we often have kangaroos visit uh, our children in the school grounds and we have koalas up in the trees sometimes too. So hello from down under. Oh my goodness me, you just sound brilliantly Australian and you just brought two of the stereotypes into your first sentence. So you're nailing it. I feel transported to down under immediately. Now tell us about the nature school and the principles and what you're trying to do differently to normal primary schools. Well, here at the Nature School, uh, we do still deliver the same curriculum as every other school does in Australia, but we love to do it a little bit differently. And particularly, we love to connect children with the great outdoors. So about half of the time, we're still teaching inside in our classrooms. But the other half of the time, we're either teaching outside in our in our outdoor classrooms at the school, or we take uh, the whole of the Port Macquarie area to be our classroom. Now, Port Macquarie is a beautiful coastal town in New South Wales. So within 15 to 20 minutes of our school grounds, we could be on the beach. 
We could have um, beautiful bushland space full of gum trees. We could be at a riverside location or a lake. Um, so we say Port Macquarie is our big classroom and we can learn English, math, science or geography in any of those spaces. I love the idea that the children are running around with, with kangaroos and koalas. Uh, what do you, I, I mean, it, it's a brilliant idea. It's a lovely idea. I love the idea of children running around outdoors, especially, you know, children like my rather active boys. But what does that, how does it actually help them learn? How does it help their education? Look, we're talking about children who are between the ages of 5 and 12, and it's so important for them that they have hands-on experiences for their learning, that the first time they encounter a concept in maths isn't in a book or on a screen, that it's actually something they can touch, feel, manipulate with their hands, and very often that's easy to do outdoors. We're also talking about five to 12-year-olds who have an awful lot of energy. And there's a lot of research that supports that they're not designed yet to sit at a desk and a chair for um, six hours a day. And it's far better for their physical development and their academic development if we can let them get up and move around. Plus, there are so many well-being aspects to being outdoors and a, a growing body of work that's really supporting connecting people of all ages, not just children, with the natural world. Okay, so tell us about a typical day for your primary school students. So it's winter here uh, in Australia. So this morning, the students all arrived at school and they spend the first part of the day outdoors, obviously, but it's cold. So we had the fire going. So lots of our students gathered around the fire to warm up this morning. I think uh, there was even a pot of tea boiling uh, on the fire, some lemon myrtle tea made with uh, bush leaves that we have here that make a beautiful uh, tea in the morning that some of them could share. And then we play a drum to let them know it's time to come inside and go to their classes. And some of the day will be inside learning English, learning maths, but they could also have their whole maths lesson outside. Uh, but yesterday, a lot of my students jumped onto the minibus. All of the teachers know how to drive the bus here. Uh, and that class had their adventure day off-site. So they could head down to the beach for the day where their maths might be uh, collecting uh, data. Uh, it might be drawing numbers in the sand. Their science might be exploring the rock pools and finding out a lot about the creatures that live in that intertidal zone. Their English might be reading some texts and stories down on the beach and writing about their experiences. And their art might be journaling in their nature journals about some of the discoveries they found down at the beach. And they jump back in the bus and uh, come back to school to be picked up in the afternoon. It sounds completely dreamy. And what about things like recess, the break times and lunch? Do you have rules on what can and cannot be brought into school? We don't have a lot of rules. Most of our rules come <laughs> down to safety and we do have lots of time for play. It's really important that children play. Actually, um, the conventions on the right of a child says that every child has the right to play. So we make sure they have three breaks a day for play and all of our learning chunks through the day are broken up with play times. Uh, one of the only rules we have outside at playtime is if you want to play with sticks, a big stick needs a big space. And our students love to build and construct things outside uh, with sticks. They also love to kick a ball around, play in the mud, play in the sand. They do get a little bit dirty at the nature school, but that's okay. And if it rains, they still play outside. We just put on our gumboots, our raincoats, and we play in the rain. I love your line, a big stick needs a big space, <laughs> because that is exactly the scenario that we have in our household on a regular basis. And now one of the, oh, sorry, carry on. 
I was going to say, I think my kindergarten teacher keeps a bucket at the door back into her classroom that our five-year-olds all put their sticks back in before they come inside. They go back in because those sticks can be anything. They can be magic wands. They can be swords. They can be drawing tools. They can be poking tools. They can be tickling tools. Uh, the stick that's, that's is a it. the stick is and, a masterful And we want body. to encourage children's imagination, definitely. It's really important for their growth and development. Now, one of the big topics we've been discussing on the show today is uh, class size because Dubai is getting busier, the schools are getting busier and the classes that we've all sort of got used to being quite small because quite a lot of the schools are new. And so they start with small class sizes and then obviously expand as they become more established and more popular. And lots of parents are cross because the class sizes are getting bigger. What are your class sizes like at the nature school? We pride ourselves on keeping our classes small. So a full class for us is 18 students. And we like to keep it that size. 18 students can fit in a little mini bus with uh, two adults and they can go to all kinds of adventures all over the place. And we still really believe that smaller class sizes mean better attention, more one-on-one time from teachers to students. Um, So we've limited our, our school size and our class sizes to keep them intentionally small. How about screens? Do you still allow them access to iPads and things like that for their studying? We sure do. It's important that children can uh, navigate the kind of technology they need to to be functional people in today's society. But we tend to move away from gamified type learning at the nature school. We look for opportunities to be producers of content um, on screens rather than just consumers themselves. And we have really robust cases on our iPads so the kids can still take them outside. (laughs) We want them to use their iPads to take photographs of things in nature, perhaps Uh, use apps to be able to identify a species of fungi or a plant that they've seen and maybe even contribute to citizen science projects. Um, Like we annually participate in account of the kind of birds that are in our area and we contribute that data so that we can um, protect species that are around our school. What I love is that throughout the whole of this very sensible conversation where I've learned a huge amount, uh, not least that I want to send my children to the nature school in Port Macquarie, that throughout the whole conversation, if you're watching on Facebook Live, the kangaroo puppet (laughs) has been participating in the whole conversation, looking genuinely uh, intrigued by what you're saying and and, and moving his head and arms accordingly. So it's been a a double header, so to speak. Uh, Thank you. I think we learned during uh, COVID time when everything was shut down that we had to be able to translate across the screen. And so for me, every day I say hello and good morning to all of our students. And when COVID came, I had to find a creative way to still do that. So the puppet and I spent a lot of time on the screen together and got quite good at uh, communicating uh, virtually with children. Yeah, you're basically, you're naturals now. I imagine one of your hand is already puppet, is always puppeted at this moment. Uh, One of our (laughs) lovely listeners, Finn, has got in touch saying, the Australian school sounds like heaven. Is there an age limit? I'm only 66. So I think Finn wants to join you as well. Uh, I'm 43 and I'm ready to come down there as well. I like to be taken rock pooling. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Catherine Shaw. Thank you for joining us all the way from Australia. Uh, Head of Primary at the Nature School. I hope you have a good evening. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much indeed. Wow, doesn't it sound awesome? Uh, Just imagine going out and, you know, drawing in the sand, doing your science lessons by looking at sea anemones. It just sounds like complete heaven. Uh, Finn, you got it right there. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. 
Now, I have a really lovely heartwarming story for you for me to close my week on the radio with. Uh, basically, the UAE Special Olympics team have returned home victorious after winning six golds, eight silver, two bronze and an achievement ribbon for fourth place in the bowling and swimming contest at the Malta Special Olympics Invitational Games. Uh, I'm joined now on the line by Fatima Mohammed. She's head of strategy and projects for the Special Olympics UAE. She was also head of the UAE delegation that went to Malta this year. The team of 11 athletes were taking part in what was their first international competition since the start of the pandemic. Uh, This is such a fantastic achievement, Fatima. Thank you so much for joining me on the line. How are you? Thank you so much for hosting us today. And it's a pleasure for us to speak at Dubai Eye. Uh, It's a great chance, a great platform for, for everyone, the whole community in Dubai and the UAE as well. Thank you so much. Now, tell me how important was an event like this for the Special Olympians taking part? Um, as you know, that Special Olympics uh, World Games started in uh, 2019. Uh, we had all of the great achievements that were achieved back then in 2019 with the World Game. The whole world came to the UAE and Abu Dhabi and Dubai. It was a great event. Uh, post the uh, World Games, Special Olympics UAE started um, the programs of Special Olympics in the UAE and to carry on the legacy of the World Games. But later on, the pandemic came and all of these sports events and, and participations internationally and nationally uh, stopped due to the pandemic and uh, to put our uh, the safety of our athletes um, into consideration, definitely. So the, the, the participation of Malta came the first after the World Games. It's the first big uh, participation internationally, which we're very proud of. We have 11 athletes that participated in three sports. Oh, I worry. Have we lost the line? No, we still have the line, which is brilliant. Uh, And I'm so pleased to hear that the legacy of that fantastic event that took place here in the UAE, the Special Olympics, has been progressing so well. How many countries were included in this event? Um, 23 countries were there. Most of them, all of them actually, were from Europe. The only two countries that were not from Europe are the USA and the United Arab Emirates. And the United Arab Emirates got to participate uh, in a, in a special invita- due to a special invitation from Malta and Special Olympics International. And we're very proud to say that, that Special Olympics UAE got that special invitation due to the great performance of the Special Olympics team and organization in the UAE in the past three years, um, which proves that um, the UAE or Special Olympics um, or UAE itself, it's not a country that just hosts events for, for the sake of hosting them. No, we, we definitely look, look forward and we um, have a vision of, of um, after hosting any, any mega event. Um, Special Olympics was not just an event that was hosted again. It's a, it's a legacy that we carried. Uh, we do have now lots of programs that are running in different places across the UAE. Um, and we're very proud of that. Is the principle of these types of competitions to make sure that everyone feels included? Yes, definitely. The great thing about Special Olympics competitions is that we do have the visioning process that happens uh, before the competitions themselves. So um, uh, in any competition, you will have the visioning, uh, which means that each athlete will compete in a, in a category that suits his abilities. So not he, the athlete will not be competing with someone who is a very um, high-leveled uh, athlete. Uh, each category will be uh, competing with each other, which makes sure that all athletes have uh, fair uh, games and and um, equal uh, chances of winning as well. 
Okay, so we have lots of parents who listen to this program uh, who might have children who could qualify uh, for this team. How can you get involved? How can you join? We do have lots of ways of, of, of getting involved in Special Olympics. And the great thing about Special Olympics UAE is that you do not have to be a local so you can get benefits from the programs that we do offer. And um, offering the programs in Special Olympics is completely free. We do not ask for any um, amount of or any fee for any type of registration. Special Olympics cover all of the expenses of any uh, program that we offer, which is a great thing that serves the community and the and the sector of people of determination. Uh, we do have a website. There are many different ways. Um, an athlete can be part of the program of Special Olympics, a coach, a parent, or, um, or a volunteer as well. Um, uh, visiting our website, specialolympics.ae, will be a great um, way of them to be involved. Also, schools can be part of the Special Olympics programs through the Unified Champion School program as well. More information are provided on our website. Um, we do have uh, around 460 schools that are participating with our program. Uh, and all of them are schools from the mainstream or, uh, or private sector as well, who are interested to be um, um, uh, unified uh, champion schools or more inclusive schools for students with uh, difficulties or disabilities. Uh, Fatma Mohammed, an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. And congratulations to that team and for all the hard work that led to those medals. You're doing great work, great work there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And don't forget to, to follow us on Instagram and other channels at UAESO. Perfect. Yes. And you can check out the website, uh, specialolympics.ae, if you want to get involved. That was Fatma Mohammed, Head of Strategy and Projects for the Special Olympics UAE and Head of the UAE Delegation that just went to Malta. And that's all from the Eye on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.